Somebody's going to expect something besides everybody fellowshipping. We should be in Galatians chapter 4 tonight, if you want to turn there. And Father, we come before you, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the blessing that it is to look at it, ponder it, apply it into our lives, Lord, and I pray that you would lead and guide our study tonight. Lord, we also want to lift up, uh, there's so many folks that we have in our fellowship right now that are sick, and we want to pray for them. I think of Maria, of course, and then also Dee. And uh, we have quite a few other folks that have colds and flus and just a lot of stuff going around. Lord, we just pray that you would touch and heal and bring everybody back, Lord, that we can have that time of, of fellowship and, uh, and especially in that time of worship together with you, uh, worshiping you. And Father, we just thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So... Here in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is going to be speaking to us uh, and, of course, to the Galatians about uh, not depending upon the law, of course, for their relationship with God, as he has been in chapter 3 as well. But one of the things among the blessings of the Christian experience is adoption. We see that here in chapter 4, verse 5, and also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. And, and it's something that God gives to us. He adopts us as his sons and daughters. Uh, we do not enter God's family by adoption, though, the way a, in that same way that a homeless child would enter into a loving family in our society. The only way we get to get into God's family is by regeneration, at being born again, as it tells us in John chapter 3 and verse 3. The New Testament word for adoption means to place as an adult son. It has to do with our standing in the family of God. We are not little children, but adult sons with all the privileges of sonship. Of course, you understand when I'm saying this, it speaks to both sons and daughters. So it's, it's not just men, of course. It's men and women as we are brought into the family of God. We are the children of God by faith in Christ, born into God's family. Um, but every child of God is automatically placed into the family as a son. And as a son, he has all the legal rights and privileges of a son. You remember we talked about this uh, last week when we were dealing with the whole thing about how uh, the law was a tutor, it was a steward over us, over all, and how there was, within their culture, there was, for a, a young boy, he would have a steward over him who would, you know, help him and train him and that kind of thing, until he got to a certain age, then after he got to that certain age, he became a full heir to whatever his father had. And so Paul is talking about that here when he's talking about ado adoption. And when we are adopted into him, we have all those legal rights as a, as a son, not as a small child, but as, as a, as a full-fledged uh, family member and son. Um, 
when a sinner trusts Christ and is saved, as far as his condition is concerned, he is a spiritual babe who needs to grow. But as far as his position is concerned, he is an adult son who can draw on the father's wealth and who can exercise all the wonderful privileges of sonship. And this is you know, one of the advantages of being adopted as a son by God is that we come into that um, where we have all the blessings, the full blessings of being a, a son and, and a joint heir with Christ, which means that we have access to all the power and everything that we have need of in order to overcome the things in our lives that would hinder us. And we have the blessings of God, the inheritance of Christ, in that, that he gives to us the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit and access to the word of God in order to be able to grow and to mature as to what he would have us to become. And we enter into God's family by regeneration, but we enjoy God's family by adoption. The Christian does not have to wait to begin enjoying the spiritual riches he has in Christ. If a son, then an heir of God through Christ, as we'll see here in this chapter in verse 7. So, verse 1, Paul says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, is a child does not differ from all, uh, at all from a slave, though he is master of all. So, no matter how wealthy a father may be, his infant son or toddling child cannot really enjoy that wealth. In the Roman world, the children of wealthy people were cared for by slaves. No matter who his father was, the child was still a child under the supervision of a servant. In, a, in fact, the child himself was not much different from the servant who guarded him. The servant was commanded by the master of the house, and the child was then commanded by the servant. So Paul is talking about this here that, that as long as he is a child, he does, he's no different than the slave. But as soon as he matures, then there are things that change. Verse 2, but the, this child is under the guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Though by birthright he owned the whole estate, nevertheless he was kept by uh, super servants like a slave in that he enjoyed no freedom and could make no decisions for himself. In fact, the heir as a child was under the guardians um, who watched over his person and trustees who protected his estate. This was true until he came of age as a son, an age that varied in Jewish, Grecian, and Roman societies. Under Roman law, the age of maturity for a child was set by his father and involved a ceremonial donning of the toga virilis and his formal acknowledgement as a son and an heir. And so I like this because with the Roman culture, it wasn't that once he reached a certain age, then he became adult. In the Jewish culture, they, uh, when you're 13 years old, you have a bar mitzvah. Uh, and at that point, after you have your bar mitzvah, you are considered that joint heir with your father. 
you're no longer that child anymore. So there is that, that age that they have set upon it. It's when you hit 13. But for the Romans, it was, it was dependent upon the maturity of the child. So 13 might have been the age, but maybe when he was 13, he was just a little too immature as a 13-year-old, and he needed to grow more. And so they wouldn't do this until he was older. You know, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old, usually at the latest that he would step into that role as now being joint heir with his father, having that toga. Remember, we talked about that last week, about it was a toga that had a particular stripe on it so that everybody saw that he now had gone from being a boy to being a man and a joint heir. And I love this because it says that the father is the one who would make that determination just as it is uh, within our life as well. Verse 3, even so... We, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So this term here, the elements of the world, Barclay had this to say about that. He said, Paul uses an interesting phrase here to describe it. Paul uses the word stochia. A stochion was originally a line of things for uh, a line of things. For instance, it can mean a file of soldiers but it came to mean the ABC and then any elementary knowledge. So in other words, it became as that, that very foundation, a foundational knowledge. And so it, the elements of the world are, are that, that very knowledge, the, the beginning of things, if you were. And if there is any ABC of the universe, uh, that elementary principle, if you will, that we must break free from and that is stressed in pagan religion just as much as Jewish law. It is the principle of cause and effect. Call it karma, call it you get what you deserve or whatever. It rules nature and the minds of men. We live under the idea that we get what we deserve and when we are good, we deserve to receive good. And when we are bad, we deserve to receive bad. And, and that is something that's difficult for people to break free from. And as a matter of fact, there are people that have trouble with their relationship with God because they, quite, they can't quite understand why is it that when I'm doing all things right that my life seems to go upside down. How is it when I'm serving God, when I'm loving God, when I'm studying God's word, when I'm praying all the time, that something happens in my life, some catastrophe that, that absolutely changes my life? And so we, bought in, we have bought into that idea, that worldly philosophy, that bad things don't happen to good people. And that good things shouldn't happen to bad people. But, of course, the problem with that is, is we don't even see that in the world, do we? Oftentimes, we're, we're really kind of tore up about the fact that it seems like bad people get everything. They got all the stuff. They seem to have everything in life that makes them happy. How is it that I have nothing and they have everything? Read Psalm 73, and you get the idea about that because the psalmist felt the same way. And even declared that his foot almost slipped into going in after the things of the world and the way of the world because he saw that they seemed to have no pain of death. They seemed to have everything that they wanted and they were getting the good things in life and he was struggling 
But he says, but when he went into the house of the Lord and he saw their end, that he realized that they better enjoy everything. I'm prayer, prayer, uh, yeah, paraphrasing this. They better enjoy everything they're getting because that's all they're going to get. And when they get to the other side, they're not going to be very happy. It's interesting. I watched a little documentary last night. Um, I started looking on this Jewish channel on TV. And they've got some interesting programs on there. And one of the programs they had was they had a guy on there who wrote a book uh, entitled uh, Dylan and Me. He was uh, Bob Dylan's best friend. They grew up together. They're still best friends. I mean, they talk to each other and everything. Uh, And uh, the reason I bring it up is because it was interesting that what drove him, because even though he was Jewish, and he had had his bar mitzvah and everything. He really was not a practicing Jew until he started receiving all his wealth. The guy is like multimillionaire. And he started wondering how he should pay God back for what all the blessings that he had given him. And the reason I bring that up is because oftentimes the Jews are of that mindset. If, you, if you're doing what's right, God's going to bless you. And if he does, then you need to give back to him. It's also another, just a little side note here. Uh, often wondered about the whole thing with Dylan and his experience with Christ and everything. And uh, turns out at the time when Dylan was, as uh, this guy put, uh, put it, Louis Kemp is his name, uh, he said that he and Dylan were living together in Westwood in Southern California and that he was studying the New Testament and that Louis was studying the Old Testament and he couldn't answer the questions that Dylan had. And so there was a time that Dylan was really digging in to the New Testament. But what changed it was that Louis found a rabbi that was answering all these questions that he had about life. And so he got Bob hooked up with that that, uh, rabbi and that's when Dylan renounced his faith and went back to Judaism. And he and Kemp both are uh, Orthodox Jews. So answered some questions for me how that all worked. One more thing before I go on. Dylan, from the very beginning of his career and everything else, he recognized that what he had was a gift from God. He knew that it was a gift. And he, Louis said that he asked him one time, he said, where do you get all these lyrics and everything? He says, I don't know. He says, the Lord just gives them to me. And uh, it also answers the question for me about his, uh, he had three albums, I think it is, as a Christian. And I've told everybody, uh, you can't write lyrics like that without having the Spirit of God in you. You can't say the things that he said and not know the Lord. So I'm very hopeful, uh, as God is so good, that on those last moments of our life to reach out to our heart, that I'm hopeful that he comes to that place at that last moment and he recants Judaism and he once again confesses Christ as his savior. So we live in a culture, in a world that has that kind of mindset and it's certainly something that we have to get over. The ABC of the universe is not bad in itself. We do and must use it in life and God has a proper place for it. In other words, it is true that if I'm doing bad things, I should not expect that God's going to bless me. 
If I'm misbehaving, if I'm living in sin, if I'm doing all those things, then I should not be surprised if my life really is tore up. Uh, because God is not going to bless me if I'm not going to be obedient to him. But the problem that we have, of course, is when we're doing what's right and it seems like our life is, is turning upside down. Well, as a believer, we know what the word says. And that is that even though uh, we may see our life being turned upside down, we know our Father has a great purpose and a plan in it. And we know that all things work together for good to those that love him, those that are called according to his purposes. All things is all things. It may, it may not be easy. And as a matter of fact, oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes it's very difficult. But nonetheless, we have that comfort in our heart that God's going to do something through these things to make us more and more into the image of Christ and to work out the things in our hearts that need to be worked out. We must not base our relationship upon that, that principle, though. Like I said, we base our, life, our, our relationship with Christ upon what the Word of God says. He does not deal with this on the principle of earning and deserving. Because this is such an elementary principle, it is so hard for us to shake this kind of thinking. But it is essential if we will walk in grace. When we live on the principle of earning and deserving before God, we live in bondage under the elements of the world. In verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So God marks the fact that divine intervention brought hope and freedom to mankind. As a human father, chose the time for his child to become an adult son, so the Heavenly Father chose the time for the coming of Christ to make provision for people's transition from bondage under the law to spiritual sonship. This time was when the Roman civilization had brought peace and a road system which facilitated travel. When the Grecian civilization provided a language that was adopted as the lingua franca of the empire. When the Jews had proclaimed monotheism and the messianic hope in the synagogues of the Mediterranean world. It was then that God sent his son, the pre-existent one, out of heaven to, and to earth on a mission. The son was not only deity, he was also humanity as the expression born of a woman indicates. You know, it's interesting, it'll drive you nuts if you ever try to figure out God's timing of things. Uh, but I look at it often that it's all about God and his, and his grace towards men. Uh, you think about thousands of years that the Jews existed before Jesus showed up on the scene. But God was working out all the details. Like I said, you know, I just lined up for you the, the perfect timing of the Messiah to come. A time when the world was really under a, an empire that brought order to the whole world. Right? And then not only that, but developed a, a road system uh, that was crazy. I mean, they, they didn't have roads like this before the Roman Empire. And as a matter of fact, it was always one of the difficulties for, for countries that were warring with one another, is getting their troops from point A to point B in order to do battle. 
There needed to be that road system in order for them to be able to travel fast and, and you know, to get there the shortest route possible and that kind of thing. But God worked out all that timing for the, a perfect time for his son to come so that when he was crucified, then the gospel could be spread throughout the whole world so easily relative to the periods of time before Christ came. Perfect timing, right? And, and, it's, and it's been that perfect time ever since, even though it may seem like, man, you know, 4,000 years before anything was going to happen. Seems like a long time. But yet God was giving opportunity to the Jews. He was, he was leading them and guiding them in his grace and his mercy, his faith, giving them opportunity so that they were well prepared for the time when the Messiah would come. This was part of the problem that Jesus had, that, that they missed that opportunity. They had had all these years of preparation. They had the oracles of God. They knew about the Messiah. They knew all this stuff. And it wasn't just for a short period of time. It had been hundreds of years that that had taken place. And there was even that 400-year span between the Old and the New Testament of silence that would have caused them to look, to search the scriptures, to know and to see why aren't we hearing God? Why isn't it happening anymore? But of course they missed it and that's what really broke the heart of God and his son. We see here it says that, that God sent forth his son and the word that is used here is ex apostello. And the word apostello refers to the act of one who sends another with a commission to do something. The person sent being given credentials. And of course, we see that with Christ. We get our word apostle from it. The prefix uh, preposition apo means from. Um, this means that the person sent is to represent the sender. He, he is his ambassador. Our Lord is called the apostle uh, and high priest of our confession, according to Hebrews 3.1. And then we also are sent as ambassadors as well. It, it, when you think about that a little bit, you understand why when Jesus was asked about the Father, they said, all you had to do is look at me, and you will know the Father. He was the expressed image of the Father. He was the ambassador of the Father, one who was sent to represent him to bring people to that place of knowing who the Father was. And in that same way, we are too. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 2 through 3, it says, Then he said to them, The harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send, and the word there is ekbalo, and it means to lead forth or to release out the laborers into his harvest. And in verse 3 it says, Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among the wolves. So it's that same idea that we are being sent out as ambassadors into the world. Uh, and that, that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's still the same thing. God wants us to go out into the world. But not only was the Lord sent from off, 
uh, from the presence of the Father, but as the other prefix preposition ek signifies, he was sent out from his very presence. And we see here it says that he was born of a woman. So not only was he sent forth from God, but he was also incarnate. He became a man. And that he was born under the law. He was subject to the Jewish legal economy just as any Jew was subject to it. He kept the law perfectly, fulfilled it, and finally paid its curse as he was hung on a cross. So just as it was that the perfect timing that God sent his son into the world, so it is too with us. It's God's perfect timing that we are sent into the world as well. You know, sometimes when we're thinking about the time period in which we live and how we're, you know, in those last days and the difficulties that we see going on in the world, the things that are happening, some of them can be somewhat frightening if we didn't know Christ. If, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be scared to death, to be honest with you. You know, but because I know the Lord, I know the end of the story. And I know bottom line, you know, that I'm going to, you know, be in his presence. So I'm, I'm good with it. But the truth is, is that God has chosen each one of us to be alive in this day and in this time. Because he has a purpose for our life. And if, he, if it wasn't the case, then when you got saved, you would instantly have transported you from this life into the next but he wanted you here, wants me here, so that we can tell others about the life that is ahead. I have a friend of mine that lives up on the coast, uh, up north from here, and uh, it's a, a couple that Barbara and I know, and uh, we have stayed in contact with them, but we haven't remained good friends, and part of that is, is because her husband is a, an atheist right? He's a naturalist. Uh, matter of fact, I've spoken about him before. He's the guy that taught me how to fish, you know, but man, I mean, he's totally self-sufficient. Well, here of late, he had a four-way bypass on his heart. And uh, so they, uh, she, his wife has started going to Calvary Chapel of Smith River, and, which is really cool because I've been trying to get her to go, well, my wife and I have been trying to get her to go there for some time. And she'd been going to another church, and she started going there. She's loving it. Well, Pastor Ramel called me today, and he's trying to reach out to my friend who had the bypass. And he still won't have anything at all to do with believers. But yet, he's scared to death. And I mean, literally, he's scared to die. But yet, he won't examine the hope that there is in Christ. So now i got to get on my bicycle and ride up there. Uh, and see if I can convince him to have a few words with me because he's really not letting anybody else get there. So I was the best man at his wedding, so I have a little bit of a in there. So uh, we'll go up there and see him. But, you know, the point I was trying to make with all that is that living without Christ in the times in which we live, it, it's a good thing to be afraid of death. It is. But if we know Christ, then we know we have nothing to fear in this life. We have nothing to fear with the days that we're living in. We have nothing to fear at all. We don't even have to fear fear because in Christ we can overcome fear, right? God has not given us the spirit of fear, right? But of power and love and a sound mind, right? Verse 5, and to redeem those who were under the law 
that we might receive the adoption as sons. So because Jesus is God, he had the power and the resources to redeem us. Because Jesus is man, he has the right and the ability to redeem us. He came to purchase us out of the slave market from our bondage to sin and the elements of the world. In verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So, uh, a couple of things. I, I love this when it says that God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. That idea there is that that we get to have this relationship with God that we call him daddy, that there's a, a nearness and a closeness that is there. But without that adoption, that wouldn't be possible, right? And, and you know, uh, I know a lot about adoption. My wife was adopted, and I know how much she loved her father. But she didn't love some other guy just because he was a father figure. It was her adopted father who filled that role in her life, and, and he was extremely close to her, spoiled her rotten. I had to put up with all of that uh, while he was alive. Uh, and uh, I'm glad he did it, because then I didn't have to, right? Yeah. Uh, but anyways, my point is that being able to, through that adoption, through God adopting us as sons and daughters, we have this wonderful nearness and closeness to him that is like a real father in our life, as if he, well, he is our father, but he, I, th I hope you're getting what I'm trying to say, right? The Lord gives us this privilege, this privileged relationship, and it's, and it's not to anyone other than those that believe in Jesus Christ, but it is to whoever will believe in Jesus Christ. It's to all who will come, God will do. And there's none that come that God would reject. And so we have this wonderful relationship where we get to draw near to him as our heavenly father and, and come and to allow him to work in our hearts and our lives to satisfy every need that we have. You know, definitely, you know, uh, that wonderful scripture there in 2 Peter chapter 1 that Pastor Paul quoted tonight, you know, that he is the one who gives us everything that we have need of pertaining to life and godliness. And it's done through the knowledge of Christ, and through the knowledge of Christ, we have adoption as sons. And so it all works together, you know, in our lives. And so that we are no longer slaves, but a son. It, it is no longer that we are that, that one that's off in the distance, but now we have the, the, the toga. We, we have that, that clear indication that we belong to him. And in so doing, we are now, we have all these rights. As adopted children, we are granted the rights as natural born children, crying out, Abba, Father. But there is a beautiful progression. First, we are set free from slavery. Then we are declared sons and adopted into God's family. Then as sons, we are made heirs. Heirs inherit something. And what do we inherit? A, a new cell phone. 
<laughs> Paul makes it clear. An heir of God through Christ, we inherit God himself. For some, this might seem like a paltry inheritance, but for those who are really in Christ, who really love God, to be an heir of God is the richest inheritance of all, of all. There have been those who in this life have been adopted, uh, children that have been adopted by people who are extremely wealthy. And when they become that, that, legal, that legal adopted child, they become an heir of the family. And they have all the legal rights. If the, if the father dies and the mother is dead and they're, they're left and they are a son or a daughter and there are other relatives that want to try to latch on to it, they don't have the rights that the son and daughter does. And that's the, that's the idea here is that, that we have the richest dad in all of creation. I, I don't even just want to say the world of all creation. And, and as that, as such, we, we inherit everything that belongs to him. Everything that Christ owns, we have heirship with it. Which says a lot, to be honest with you. That means that there's nothing, there's nothing in my life that can overcome me because there's nothing in life that can overcome Christ. No sin, no habits, no thoughts, no, you know, no nothing can overcome me except for that which I give permission to overcome me. Because if I say no, I'm going to stand in the power and the might of Christ and in his word, it instantly guarantees victory in my life. Where I get in trouble is when my flesh gives in. You know, like I always say, I haven't said it for a while, I'll say it now because it's been a while, but there's no sin in my life that I don't like. All the sin that I have are the ones that I like, and that's why they're still there. The ones I don't like, I've given them over to the Lord, and I've claimed the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God in my life, and I've overcome those things through that. The ones that I still struggle with, you know, you can pray for me. I'm not going to tell you what they are, but I can tell you they're not so egregious that it would disqualify me from my position as a pastor of a church, so you can rest assured of that. But there's still things in my life I, I, I can't seem to break the bondage of my flesh because I don't want to give it up enough. I keep holding on to it. Through Christ, we have all the access that he had. As a man, Christ within himself, as a man, did not have the power to go to the cross. It had to be the Holy Spirit. It had to be, you know, because he was 100% man. Those temptations, those, those struggles, the, the garden scene was real. It wasn't a show for everybody. It was real. And the same power that he latched onto for the, the power to go to the cross to die and to resurrect from the dead is the power that we have access to as sons of God, sons and daughters of God. So we, we can do a lot. We can do a lot. I currently have a new friend in my life. And I say that he's somebody I've known for a while, but we're becoming closer and closer. And 
And uh, one of the things that I appreciate about this man is that he, he really believes God for the impossible. When we talk about things, he says, you know what? He says, I believe God can do that. And we're going to pray that God's going to do it. You know what? And I, I think it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, not just because he believes it, but I, I'm telling you, I, it's, a, it's a challenge to my faith to believe in that same way and the power and the ability of God in order to be able to do all things. Verse 8, but then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So, those things are weak because they offer no strength. And they're beggarly because they bestow no riches. And they lead to slavery instead of freedom. You remember what we're talking about here is that the Galatian Christians were being drawn to the law. And, and Paul is saying the, the law is weak. The law cannot, it cannot give you salvation. It can't even really you know, give you sanctification. Although in sanctification, the law is involved because we know what not to do by what the law says to us and we are sanctified as, as God applies his word into our lives and we change. But they are still, when they're being told to go back to that, they're, they're being told to go to something that really profited them not at all. Wiersbe says about it, he said, one of the tragedies of legalism is that it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity when in reality it leads the believer back into a second childhood of Christian experience. In other words, it takes you backwards. It doesn't take you, it doesn't bring you forward in that relationship with, with God. I also think about this when he says, uh, what came to my mind in this and uh, is that there in Exodus when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness and Moses goes up on the mountain and he's gone for a long period of time. The people don't think he's coming back. Uh, Joshua is halfway up on the mountain waiting for Moses to come down. And the people down there convince Aaron that Moses isn't coming back. And what we need is the golden calf that took us out of Egypt. And so Aaron says, you know, bring me all your earrings and everything else. And it's interesting, you know, um, in the Levitical law, God says that what the Israelites were not to do was to adorn themselves with earrings and such. And the reason was is because it was a part of pagan worship. And so here it is that Aaron says, here, bring me all your gold, bring me all your earrings and all these things, and I will fashion you a calf. And so he did it. I always love his response when Moses comes down the hill and he finds the people all partying around this golden calf. Aaron, what did you do? Well, you know, I just threw all the gold in a pot and out popped the golden calf. I've heard people say those kind of stupid things about the sin in their life. Oh, it just happened to me. Oh, no, you had to make a decision to go to that place. You had to make a decision to do that. It didn't just pop out. You know, I love what James says about the whole thing, you know, that 
starts with the mind and from the mind it goes to the heart and when it gets to the heart then it leads forth to the sin which brings forth death you know and those things those things don't happen by chance we are tempted but yet we are tempted not beyond which we are able to handle because God always makes a way of escape for us so that we do not give in to the temptation that is before us we have to choose that way of escape Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. So trusting in anything but the grace of God for our relationship with him is a vain thing. We can try by our best efforts to please God through our keeping the law, living as slaves, or we can live in freedom through his grace. A good example of this is John Wesley before his conversion. Wesley's one of my one of my heroes of the faith. You know, he's responsible for the Methodist movement. And at one time the Methodists were the evangelical force in the United States. And they literally spread the gospel from the East Coast to the West Coast. And they're responsible for so many churches in the Sacramento Valley uh, and Dixon and all around where they had the circuit riders that went and they did that. And in case you don't know what that is, I'll tell you real quick. The circuit rider, it was a pastor, and people would build a church in an area, and the circuit rider would come and visit. He preached seven days a week. He preached a minimum of two times a day, sometimes three times a day, at three different churches. And he would be on horseback, and he would ride to each one of those. And, uh, and they devoted themselves... Uh, to spreading the gospel and teaching the word. Before they were sent out from Wesley, they would have prepared two-year sermons. And they used those two-year sermons and they just rotated them the whole time so, so that they, they necessarily wouldn't hear them, uh, you know, but maybe once in their, or twice in their lifetime. But nonetheless, a tremendous work that he did. But he's got an interesting history. Um, he was the son of a clergyman and a clergyman himself. He was orthodox in belief, faithful in morality, and full of good works. He did ministry in prisons, sweatshops, and slums. He gave food, clothing, and education to slum children. He observed both Saturday and Sunday as the Sabbath. He sailed from England to the American colonies as a missionary. He studied his Bible, prayed, fasted, and gave regularly. Yet, all, that, all the time... He was bound in the chains of his own religious efforts because he trusted in what he could do to make himself right before God instead of trusting in what Jesus had done. Later, he came to trust in Christ in, and in Christ only for salvation and came to an inner assurance that he was now forgiven, saved, and a son of God and looking back on all his religious activity before he was truly saved, he said, <clears throat> I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. And that's exactly where God wants us to be, to have that faith of a son. Verse 12, he says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. So Paul knew the Galatian Christians should imitate his liberty, Paul was free in Jesus, and he wanted them to know that same freedom. In that way, they should become like Paul. 
And Paul says here, he said, that, he said, for I became like you. He appeals to them to do this because he who had possessed the advantages of the law has set aside these advantages and had placed himself on the same level in relation to the law as Gentiles. He tells them that he gave up all those time-honored Jewish customs and those dear accusations, or excuse me, associations of race to become like them. He has lived like a Gentile so that he might preach to Gentiles. He pleads with them not to abandon him when he has abandoned all for them. So Paul says, look, he says, I was there. This is what I was, but now I have become like you. I've been set free from the bondage of the law and the freedom in order to worship. Don't, don't go back to these things. Don't, don't turn around. It's always amazing to me. I see people do these kind of things even today. And how they, they have this wonderful freedom in Christ and relationship with God. And, and it's not enough. They've got to have some kind of religious system in order to make it legitimate to them. And they put themselves under this bondage of religion instead of the freedom of relationship. And they begin to think that, that they are actually more righteous than others because they have this religious system that they're a part of. When in fact they are really lesser because of the fact they're trusting more in that religious system than they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says here, he said, you have not injured me at all. And Paul has used some harsh language and here wants to assure them of his love for them. As John Stott puts it, he says in Galatians 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, we have been listening to Paul the apostle, Paul the theologian, Paul the defender of the faith, but now we are hearing Paul the man, Paul the pastor, Paul the passionate lover of souls. One of my favorite books is the book of Philemon because it shows the heart of Paul like no other book does in my opinion. Uh, a, a, a heart of compassion, a heart of humility, a desire to see God glorified and exalted that is not the same in other books, although you can see glimpses of it. But in that particular book, I think it really, when I read it, every time I read it, I go, this, this is the heart of Paul. Love for Onesimus, the unprofitable one, now becoming profitable for his master. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. At that time, he labored under the handicap of an illness, but remained until he had preached the gospel to them. Whatever his infirmity, the Galatians did not treat Paul with contempt or scorn as a weak messenger, but rather received him as one would receive an angel or even Christ himself. It's an, it is a very important statement that Paul makes here. In this time, in this culture, uh, it was very common that if somebody was handicapped, they were rejected by the culture and society both in the Roman, Grecian, and also in the Jewish culture, as someone who had physical handicaps was seen as someone who was cursed by God and something to be avoided. And so for them just to embrace 
Paul and whatever his infirmity was, there, there are those that believe that, that it's possible uh, because of what they say, uh, say here uh, that they would have given him their own, his, they would have given him their own eyes, that it possibly could be it was an infirmity in his eyes, that he had trouble seeing. And some speculate, that's all, because we're not told. But indeed, we do know this, that they received him warmly, even though he was handicapped by his infirmity, whatever it was. Verse 15, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So they received Paul with joy, congratulating themselves that the apostle had preached in their midst. Their appreciation knew no limits. They would have even made, have made the sacrifice of their eyes for Paul. And like I said, while some think this is an indication that Paul had a disease of the eyes, uh, something that uh, a thorn in his flesh that he spoke of in 2 Corinthians 12.7. The evidence is not conclusive. And this may simply be a bold figure of speech to convey the high esteem the Galatians had had for the apostle. They would have given him their most precious possession, their eyes. Verse 16, it says, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They no longer contemplated his presence among them with joy. Rather, they now acted as though he had become their enemy for the simple reason that he had been telling them the truth. How fickle were these Galatians? They were turning against the Lord, the gospel of grace, and the messenger who brought them the news of justification by faith. If you haven't had that experience yet, I'm sure at some point in time in your walk of faith, as you minister to others, uh, whether it's friends or have opportunities to teach or whatever it may be, you're going to find that there are times when people are really going to be upset with you because you simply teach the word of God in truth and you speak truth into people's lives because they don't want to hear it. They don't like it when you say the truth. And especially, boy, we're seeing it so much in the culture we're living in today. There's so much of, of the word of God that is unpalatable to those who do not know Christ. And especially in the arena of um, you know, physical fulfillment in our life. And I'm speaking, of course, you know, sexually most of all. And you, you guys would not believe how many people have been angry with me because I've told them that they cannot fornicate. They don't believe that. They say they don't think that God feels that way. They think God's okay with it. So I open up my iPad and I <laughs> say, show me where God's word says that one. Open up the book, show me where it is. But it's true, and it's becoming more and more so today in the world in which we're living, that the more we speak the truth of God and his word, we're going to find that there are those that dislike us in the church that dislike us for the fact that we speak the truth. Those that don't like us outside the church because we speak the truth, that's, that's a given. I expect that. But within the church, the word of God should be such that if it says it, we believe it and we accept it because God's word says it. Even though I may not like it, it doesn't change the truth about God's word. 
So after Paul had reminded them of his motives, and his was love for them, like he had said, he now exposes the Judaizers' motives. They zealously, verse 17, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. The zeal cultivated by legalism is often more a zeal for the group itself than for Jesus Christ. Though the name of Jesus in practice, though they name the name of Jesus in practice, the group itself is exalted as the main focus and usually exalted as the last refuge of the true super-Christians. Beware anytime somebody tells you that they've got, a, they've got the, right, the right religion, they've got the right church, the right church. Everybody else has got it wrong, but we got it right. Be careful, because you're gonna find there's gonna be some things in there. Uh, the reason why they feel that way is because they think they have, they've got something that you don't have. And I gotta tell you, you got access to everything that you have need of. Verse 18, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. So zeal is a good thing as long as it is zeal for the right thing. And not only uh, when I am present with you, Paul says, but Paul wanted the Galatians to be zealous for what is good when he was absent, not only when he was present among them. And of course, the zeal that Paul was looking for, for from them was that they would reject this idea of trusting in the law and, and not trusting in faith and faith alone, thinking that somehow or another that, that they could earn God's favor more so by their obedience through the law. God, and, and Paul's saying, look, if you want to be zealous, be zealous for that. Be zealous for the fact that you, you have faith and you're going to reject this idea of, of obtaining greater stature in, in the kingdom of God with God by your obedience to his word. We don't, we don't gain greater stature with God, but we, when we love God, we'll obey him. And as we do, we know that we, uh, uh, that we love him and that he loves us. It's a clear indication but if I'm doing it because I think I'm going to be considered better by God by the things that I do, well, then I've got it all backwards from there. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. <clears throat> so Paul tells him here, he says, I love you like a father. Please listen to me. Paul's motive was to point them to zeal for the grace of God through Jesus as opposed to the Judaizers, which was to draw them to themselves. In verse 20, he says, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. <laughs> I believe that Paul is saying that if he were there, then he would be less likely, they would be less likely to follow these men and that he could clearly communicate his heart. I'm sure there was some truth in that. You know, uh, there's a reason why God appoints shepherds over the people of God, and, and that is to encourage them to continue in that right path and to go. And when, when, they, when that shepherd is not there, then there's a tendency that when other false shepherds come in, they begin to follow them rather than the following the true shepherd. Paul's heart reflects the heart of God. His desire is that the intimacy between a father and his son would always be how we relate to him. 
He sent his son Jesus to make that way possible. And as we embrace Christ, it becomes a reality. And this is this true in your life? Is that becoming even more of a reality in your life day by day? In chapter 3, Paul had reminded them that their own experience should tell them of the truth of justification by faith alone. Then Paul shows them that in light of the Old Testament scriptures, these things are true. Paul is balancing their subjective experience with objective teaching by the unchanging word of God. All of our experience should be balanced by what we see in the word of God. He continues this thought here in the remainder of the chapter. So buckle up because we're going to go. No, I'm only kidding. I'm not going to try to finish the chapter up in two minutes. Um, but I will say this, you know, I love the message of Galatians, and that is that it's all about faith and trust in Christ and not about the works that we do. It's not about us keeping the law, but yet as we put faith in Christ, then we will, we will keep the law, at least to some degree. Not to that degree that, it, that we become perfect through the keeping of the law, nor is it our standard by which we judge our relationship with Christ. To me, it's one of the things that is amazing how in spite of us, and in spite of the, the things that we do or don't do, that God still loves us and he never changes that option to call him Abba. He even calls us more so to come and embrace that in our lives. Because in his loving arms is where we find forgiveness, we find hope, we find healing, we find strength, we find love. We find everything that we have need of pertaining to life and godliness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and the things that he shared with the churches of Galatia. Lord, guard our hearts against these things. Help us, Lord, to stay on, that, on that, that narrow road that you would have us on, that we would find that we could just rest in you and, and follow you, Lord. And if we stumble, get up and follow you again. Help us, Lord, just not to stumble so much. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for these things. We thank you for the work that you're doing in each one of our lives. Go before us now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all. Good night.
But I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like you did. You wanted, you wanted. I did.